Tomorrow Never Knows podcast, the podcast for people who are interested in politics and history and women talking about those things. Uh, I'm Charlotte Lydia Riley. And I'm Emma London. And today uh, we're recording the first of a two-parter on elections. We are. So um, this is timely for a few reasons yeah um and we'll get to that in a minute but this is also related to both mine and emma's research so emma how do elections come into your research well seeing as i research women who uh attempt to get power in parliaments and governments (laughs) elections are quite key um my phd thesis is crammed with all sorts of tables and stats about the amount of women elected for each party Mm -hmm. Um, particularly the Swedish Social Democratic Party, which was really dominant in the 20th century mm-hmm. in Sweden, um, and who also have pushed gender quotas. Almost all Swedish parliamentary parties use gender quotas in the mm-hmm. selection of parliamentarian candidates. Mm-hmm. Today, uh, I think there's only about two who don't. Mm-hmm. One of them is the anti-feminist Sweden Democrats, who are nationalists and male chauvinists tro- and welfare chauvinists as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously they're not ever going to go for gender quotas. They also don't really attract female members to the extent that they could actually have anywhere Mm -hmm. near parity. Mm -hmm. Um, they do attract quite a lot of other, um, people though, Mm -hmm. quite often people who have had a Nazi pass as the newspapers have recently revealed Mm -hmm. in Sweden. So, um, yeah, lots of masculine stuff where women don't really get involved but the rest of the parties and I think this is one of the reasons why Sweden is known as this gender equality mm-hmm. utopia you know that there's a lot of women representing the country mm-hmm. at all levels but it's very visible in the government and has been for the past 24 years actually hmm. and the process by which that happened then is a lot to do with your work this yeah women becoming yeah. more and more visible in parliamentary power and getting yeah. through elections yeah cool um my i mean i work on partly on the history of the labor party and so one way that you can think about the history of political parties is through elections uh, and the key elections for labor i mean there are some there are elections in the 1920s you know there's the um the kind of moments where labor has a minority government the first uh, ramsay mcdonald the first sort of, sort of labor prime minister the kind of crucial election for Labour is 1945 Mm. Um, and you know the one way to think about the history of the Labour Party is through these moments of electoral success and then I guess electoral failure actually in my work I I try not to do that too much I'm interested in what happens to political parties when they're not in power Mm. and I'm particularly interested from a Labour Party perspective what happens to voters and supporters of a party between elections and when your party's not in power you know what happens to your relationship with your party if either if you're kind of in a moment when your party doesn't seem to have any traction or, or just generally like between elections even if you are someone who's quite active in in party politics, so even if you're someone who leaflets or knocks on doors or, you know, volunteers to drive people to polling places and this sort of thing, it might be a moment when you're very engaged in political part in your kind of political party, but what happens to your sense of yourself as a political being yeah. between those high points? So part of my work is looking at Labour. I make a case that Labour's a kind of grassroots organisation and that people have a sort of sense of themselves as being fundamentally Labour, Mm. And that that's connected to lots of moral values and ideas. Yeah. And so I, you know, I make an argument that overseas aid has been adopted by the Labour Party because it's a way for Labour supporters to kind of imagine their relationship to the wider world between elections in a way that seems to connect to the broader values that the Labour Party stands for. Yeah, that's very much the case in in the Swedish Social Democratic Party mm-hmm. as well. But what I've also found is that those periods this <laughs> the Swedish social democrats weren't really out of power very much in mm-hmm. in Sweden during the 20th century they got um elected in 1936 held on to that until 1976 mm-hmm. oh, hang on they were elected in 32 and held on to 76 mm-hmm. and then they had 6 years out of power mm-hmm. and returned for another uh 9 year stint so you know they're very very dominant but it is in those periods when the party is not doing very well or is in opposition mm-hmm. that women 
kind of push their positions forward. They they manage to be a lot more radical. They're kind of allowed to be a lot more radical. Yeah. And I think the same thing happened with international solidarity. Yeah. That it becomes this, it becomes something you can actually do yeah. when you can't change mm-hmm. the health system or. It's funny, isn't it? Because on one hand, it's a really good opportunity, like those moments when women can kind of say, look, you know, for whatever reason, the party's not popular or it's not in power, and so we can seize the agenda and do things. This is something we can actually achieve, or mm. like, this is there's space for us to try to do things in this moment when perhaps they're not committed to doing things like, you know, foreign policy and the economy. Yeah. But it's also, it's that phenomenon, isn't it, of the glass cliff mm. that... Um, kind of opposite of the glass ceiling which is that women get put into positions of power get given opportunities at moments when actually the odds are stacked against you Mm. both because they're seen as expendable but also actually you know kind of cynically if you're not that committed to gender equality and you kind of let women have a go at it at a period when your party's not doing very well anyway and then it sort of fails it's very easy then to sort of say well you know we had a go yeah and we moved away from it um yeah, and I think that's really interesting that both... So I've studied the introduction of gender quotas in uh, the Swedish Social Democratic Party, the mm-hmm. ANC of South Africa, and the British Labour Party. Mm-hmm. And it all happens before they win elections. So mm-hmm. they're all... I mean, in South Africa, it's obviously extreme. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this is... they they The quota discussion in South Africa, in the ANC, happens after... Mandela is released from prison. So mm-hmm. in those four years between that they call the transition period mm-hmm. where they're negotiating with the apartheid government about elections and democracy and stuff and setting it up, that's when women manage to get the quota discussion going. Um, so obviously that's quite an extreme situation in comparison to um, Sweden mm-hmm. where it happened during three years in the early 90s when the Social mm-hmm. Democrats had you know, just given up power, having had it again for nine years previously. And, um, yeah, they decide they they decide that it's a good thing mm-hmm. that will attract the female electorate towards them. And they're right, they win quite massively mm. and form a minority um, government in 1994, mm. which is absolutely unique because it has 14 ministers out of which eight are women. Mm. So cabinet ministers, so it's more than 50% of the cabinet ministers are women. And Mm. it's not that usual story where women get to do like the little fiddly jobs without departments, but we have like a female uh, minister for justice, a Mm -hmm. female deputy prime minister, um, and other people in really high up, really sort of authoritative and visible offices, Mm. which is quite unusual. Yeah, I mean, in Britain... You know, we're still waiting for female Chancellor of the Exchequer. Yeah. This, you know, however we think about women getting more political power, you know, we've had two female uh, two female prime ministers mm. in Britain, both conservatives, obviously. There have been women have been in, in you know, a lot of cabinets, particularly in Labour cabinets. Yeah. But Chancellor of the Exchequer has still not not been. Aware. No, and the first female Home Secretary was Jackie Smith mm-hmm. in two thousand and seven, yeah. which is you know quite late. Mm-hmm. And even then, she was the third woman to hold one of the great offices of state. Yeah. It was only Margaret Thatcher and um, Margaret Beckett before her. And Margaret Beckett was, like, a few years previously. So it's, you know, we're in the 21st century Mm -hmm. (laughs) before that happens. But, yeah. So it's quite quite interesting to look at elections and look at how Mm -hmm. people are selected and how they put themselves forward. Mm -hmm. But do you remember your... Do you have any personal elections that you remember well? So, uh, so I was born in the mid-80s. So I was born in a period of conservative power in, in Britain. And I lived in an area of the country, in, in the Fens, in South Lincolnshire, which is very conservative-dominated. It's a sea of blue on an electoral map. So, I mean, there must have been um, election... You know, there were elections that happened when I was a small child, which I just don't remember. I, 87 I, would probably be the first, yeah, right? You can't remember no, that. I don't remember that. <laughs> I don't remember. I mean, my, my partner apparently remembers the um, when he would have been uh, very young, when he would have been five, he remembers um, you know, the moment when Thatcher stepped down 
as leader of the oh, Conservative really? Party, yes, because apparently his primary school made them vote on who they thought would be the next leader of the Conservative Party. Oh, wow. Uh, and he, at five years old, picked Douglas Hurd, apparently, as the next the next future leader. <laughs> but I don't remember really any of that. I remember John Major being Prime Minister. Um, and I remember a little about Margaret Thatcher. I mostly remember her spitting image puppet, actually. Mm. That's what I remember of Margaret Thatcher. I remember being absolutely terrified of her spitting image puppet. I remember John Major. And then really the first election I remember is 1997. Mm. Um, I wrote a piece recently, quite a kind of um, emotional kind of memory piece about 1997 as an election. But I do remember that, partly because it's a sort of moment of family history. You know, growing up in a very left-wing family, living in a very conservative area, it's kind of a very rare moment of political triumph. Mm. Um, and also because it sort of marked... 1997 was when I was in my first year at, prim- at secondary school, and so it meant that sort of my whole primary education and my early years were spent under a conservative government, and then my all of my teen years through until I was 25 were under a Labour government. So there's this kind of... Yeah, this moment when it when it shifts when the when the kind of political power shifts and I, I remember ninety seven quite well although as I said in this piece I wrote I actually don't know how much I remember you know yeah I remember all these images I remember these images of things like Tony Blair shaking hands with all of these people and I remember all of these interviews with people I remember Cherie opening the door yes Cherie opening the door to the flowers I remember Portillo going I can't possibly remember Portillo going there was absolutely no way that I was awake. <laughs> It was probably on the news the next morning. That's probably what I remember. But I also probably remember that from years and years and years of people talking about the Portillo yeah. moment. You know, I don't, I don't really remember how much I, I actually know. Yeah. What was your? What's the first one that you can remember? I don't really know. I don't actually really know that I remember very much from the nineteen ninety four election, which mm. I should because I was twelve when it happened. <laughs> I remember the South African election, although mm-hmm. I'm watching it on TV from mm-hmm. Sweden. With all those long snaking cues, I remember of that being on Newsround. So oh, really? Ninety-four. Yeah. I was nine. Yeah. And I remember on I remember on Newsround that being covered quite a lot, and they had the um, thumbprint voting right with mm. the ink on people's hands. Is that right? I think so. That's no, it. I, was it? I think it depends on where in South Africa yeah. you were. I'm sure I remember that as kind of an image of the people queuing and yeah, that sort of thing. Um, my parents have always been very keen to take us to vote so I've mm. been voting since well I think I, there was an election in the autumn of 1982 which I'm pretty sure I went to when I was what like four months old mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't remember that um that was when the social democrats came back into power mm-hmm. having, having been away for a few years um and then I remember the 1991 election when the social democrats got voted out mm-hmm. and there was a conservative coalition so we changed prime ministers but there's also been other political memories that happen in between we had a prime minister social democratic prime minister was assassinated mm. in 1986 um just in the street in stockholm having been to the cinema with his wife mm-hmm. and that i remember but i was only four so yeah. I, I remember the sort of reconstructed memories of mm-hmm. being told that it happened and i remember someone sort of giving telling me that i was very clever because They'd ask me who the who was the old prime minister, and I mm-hmm. said Olaf Palmer. Mm-hmm. So it was like this thing that was just around. Yeah. But I don't remember elections really. I mean, I remember being in the boots with my parents. Yeah. And my mum was very strict with not letting us know what she was voting for. Mm-hmm. Um, and she still is, which is good. It's not something that I'm ever going to be able to not um, reveal to my mm-hmm. own kids. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's. Um, it's a... But that was very good because we've always made up our own minds and we don't really know what mm-hmm. our parents vote for. But with hindsight, I realise that it's. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, both... it's more obvious with hindsight than it was back then. Both my parents live in very conservative um, constituencies, mm. so there's you know, there's very very little point voting. For, I, neither of them do vote conservative. But there's, there, there is very little point voting anything other than conservative mm. in those places, um, which gives you a kind of funny childhood relationship to elections. Yeah. Because I, you know, we until 1997, my parents didn't like the government, but like where we lived always voted for them. And so it was a really 
It's a funny relationship to the idea of democracy. That, yeah. Like everybody else seems to think this is a good idea. Well, that's a big difference between the British and the Swedish electoral mm. systems. That in Britain is first past the post. Yeah. So and it's all constituency based. In mm-hmm. Sweden, it's well, it's a proportional representation. Yeah. Yeah. So as long as any party gets more than four percent of the vote, they have seats in. Mm-hmm. In Parliament, so you can vote for whoever you want. Um, there's a whole range of parties. I mean, I maybe should actually count them up, but currently, looking as though they're going to make the election or make the Parliament after this election, because there's an election in Sweden this weekend. Mm-hmm. There's two, four, six, eight parties. Mm. So it's a very different context. I yeah. So you can vote for the old Communist Party, the left party. You can mm-hmm. vote for the uh, Sweden Democrats, but don't. <laughs> Please don't. Um, and, you know, there's Liberals. There's a Centre mm-hmm. Party. Um, it's a completely different electoral landscape. It's funny because actually some of... I, I also have these kind of political memories that aren't about elect, sort of particular moments. So I remember... I remember always as a child having the sense that the only two real parties were Labour and the Conservatives. Mm. Um, obviously, the Liberal Democrats are a reasonably new invention in Britain. Obviously, the Liberals... So the Liberal Democrats on their website uh, lay out this party history that goes back to Gladstone, <laughs> which is really interesting. But their actual... You know, the the creation of the SDP yeah. in the early 1980s, which is what creates the concept of the Liberal Democrats, that meant that, you know, when I was a child, they were actually quite a new party, though, from a very old political tradition... And I remember the sense as a child that they were essentially a joke party, but obviously one that people do vote for. And I remember being really startled to discover that some adults I knew voted Liberal Democrat, which actually, if you live in a very conservative area, is often, you know, it's often kind of tactical voting apart from Mm. anything else. But the people my parents knew voted Liberal Democrat, and I remember being absolutely astounded that you would vote for this apparently joke party when I was about six or seven. And this was compounded by the fact that there was a very famous... So the, the leader of the Liberal Democrats for a long time was a man called Paddy Ashdown, and was a very famous son front page um, after he was caught having an affair, which was Paddy Pantsdown. Mm. And this became a kind of thing that we all knew about in the playground and stuff, even though I don't think very many of us knew who, who Paddy Ashdown really was. Like I still, I still, whenever I say his name, have to pause because I think <laughs> because I'm going to say Paddy Pants down, um, and I think like yeah, for people my age, it was well at my primary school, it was as much as you know earlier generations sang about Thatcher, Thatcher, Milk Snatcher. Yeah, Paddy Pants down was like a funny thing that we knew about politics, so that was funny. I also remember um, actually probably one of the really big political memories I have weirdly is the um, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. Oh yeah, thing. Basically because obviously the kind of language used to describe what had actually transpired between them mm. was quite baffling to someone who wasn't well, it was old, yeah. right? So it, Yeah, it was the sort of obscenity of it, but mm-hmm. also the fact that it was all in US legal So it's language, all in US legal language, which is really which difficult. Is impenetrable. I didn't know what impeachment was or anything. Yeah. And I, I had no idea. I didn't know who, who she was or who he was. Um there was and and then just like the references to the act itself. So like there were the this stuff about there being evidence on her dress. I had no idea what that might be. <laughs> and lots of references to a cigar that a cigar yeah. had been involved. I was just I just I I mean genuinely as a as a because when did this happen? 1994, right? It's something like that. I mean, that's when the election is, and I guess it's kind of coming out around there, and then maybe 96, I want to say. We should probably check yeah. this. We'll check this and, and verify it on the website. I was definitely at primary school when this was all going on, and and I was, you know, we had been told so much about smoking being a bad thing that I just genuinely thought the detail with the cigar was that they had also smoked a cigar. <laughs> And it was clearly... Well, that would have been a bad thing. It was absolutely, no, it's very bad for your health. Um, so I had no idea about it. And actually there's um, recently, I think in the context of Me Too, people have been revisiting mm. Monica Lewinsky, right? And she has also, you know, has become a public figure, a respected public figure in her own right who can talk about her treatment in the media. Yeah. And there's the podcast Slow Burn, the first series of which was about Watergate, is this time about Lewinsky and part of what they're reassessing is the treatment of Monica Lewinsky, mm. the treatment of her often as, you know, someone the other day I saw um, on Twitter quoting uh, Boris Johnson talking about Lewinsky and basically saying she was power hungry and mm. clearly, you know, kind of manipulative. She was very, very young. Yeah. Um, 
I don't remember Lewinsky recently kind of coming out. There's a Beyonce lyric um, on on Beyonce where she where she talks about um, in in what must be kind of an act of revenge against Jay Z. Talks about Jay Z Monica Lewinsky Monica Lewinskying all over her dress. <laughs> And Le- and Lewinsky came out and said it should be Bill Clintoning. Like, why has this got anything to do with me? Yeah. This isn't something that I did. Um, so all of that kind of, I remember yeah. all of that happening, but it not really understanding any of it and having to piece it together. I think that's really interesting as well. That whole the Lewinsky story or the Clinton saga, maybe we should call it, um, because this is happening at the same time that women are making progress mm-hmm. in parliaments around yeah. the world quite significantly so in countries that have social democratic or mm-hmm. labor governments in particular i mean scandinavia just shoots to the top of the list mm-hmm. of, of the most gender equal parliaments in the early yeah. 90s and it's still you know people you know even in scandinavia mm-hmm. <laughs> had a very disparaging thoughts about monica Lewinsky yeah. and what she had been up to much more so than than what Bill Clinton had been up to. And yes. I remember comments, overhearing comments and stuff. And mm-hmm. like the way it was portrayed on the news and things, that it's still, you know, women might have been making progress in parliaments, but mm-hmm. they were still subjected to a whole different gaze. Yeah, of course. Um, and it, and you... we, I think we quite often fall into some sort of trap thinking that the 90s was quite recent, mm-hmm. a quite recent time. And it just, those things really prove that it's yeah you know we're getting old (laughs) it's also I mean it's one of those things isn't it where that became which has happened a little with me too particularly with me too in British politics where if it if the men who are indicate who are kind of implicated in it are broadly progressive then it becomes very people somehow find it very difficult to believe that they might themselves be doing bad things yeah and so all of the language I remember about Clinton was definitely you know, and it is very bizarre that someone would be impeached for essentially having an affair. You know, Nixon was mm. not impeached. But so, the you know, it all became around this, oh, this is a conspiracy. This is about Starr and the Republicans trying to bring down this progressive pre- president, which, of course, it, it partly is. But that completely negates his behaviour and it makes Lewinsky into a figure of fun. And, and it becomes, mm. it's a conversation about something else, basically. Mm. It becomes a conversation about something else. Which, you're right, in the context of the 1990s where women are getting more political power, mm. then it's... A... It's, a, it's a sim sign of the constant backlash that's mm-hmm. just, like, waiting. Yeah, exactly. But also the way in which that, that kind of fits into different bits of the political spectrum as well. The mm. women are just as much pawns on the left, on the progressive left, as they are on the right. Yeah. Um, and they can be dismissed in the same way on both sides. Both yeah. sides, all sides of the political spectrum as well. What was the first election you voted in? 2005. Oh, wow. You um, had to wait quite a while. Yeah, because of the way that elections oh, yeah, fall in Britain. So, yeah. I, you know, there were elections in 1997 when I was 12, 2001 when I was 16, and then 2005 was the next one. So I was 20 mm. when, I ele- when I voted. And I was living in Camden, or I was living in the constituency of Camden. 2005 would have been my second year at university. So my MP was Frank Dobson. Okay. In a very safe Labour seat. Mm. Um, and I think I voted for him. I remember um, it was also the local Labour election, uh, local London elections, yeah. which were reasonably new and which I I think, you know, there'd obviously been council elections where I'd grown up, but the council and then the London Assembly are very different. Mm. And, and the London Assembly has a different voting system. It's not first past the post. Yeah, no, it's... Proportionate it's representation. Proportional. And I remember suddenly having to think about proportion. And I think I remember voting um, for a lot of green candidates okay. in proportional representation, thinking that was a good thing to do somehow, that you should kind of use it as an opportunity to vote for a wider spectrum than yeah. you would get in a normal first I think that's quite common in general here as well, mm. that people do that. They sort of spread their votes a bit more when yeah. they actually get the chance to do proportionate. It's funny, isn't it? Because it's funny that we're, we're so used to first past the post that when we're given this different opportunity, you just think about it totally differently. Mm. It's like, well, what's on my wish list? Of it's all like these a different bag things? of pick and mix rather yeah. than like yeah. one bag of one yeah. boring. Because I am normally, I'm, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm a fairly tribal I think, you know, people in Britain are fairly tribal in their politics. I don't think people switch very much from party to party. No. There is supposedly this drift rightward as you get older, but actually I've seen that explained mostly that it's not actually individuals 
who get further to the right. It's just that the generation who are older are more right wing. Yeah. And actually this drift to the right isn't really happening. Um, that sounds very promising. Yeah. So <laughs> um, I seem to be going further left with age. So if, I feel yeah, like if this doesn't radical. stop until I'm in my 80s, well, who knows where I end up. <laughs> yeah, I'll be, by the time I'm in my 80s, I'll be living in a commune somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Full, full, like a full feminist separatist commune. Yeah. Um, Tomorrow never knows future. <laughs> you can, you can buy your plots now. Um, I also remember being very seduced. Uh, I am exact. I'm of exactly the right age to have been very seduced by the Liberal Democrats' promise not to to get rid of tuition fees. Oh yes, I was a university student when when the Lib Dems said that that would be the case. And so, that's for the 2010 election. That's for the 2010 election. So I oh no, well they've had that policy for a yeah, while though. So but it, 2010 it was when they that's when they went reneged on it. But yeah. they had the policy. So in 20, 2005, that was a big. Because 2005 is the moment when that you know they shift from having I paid tuition fees, but I only paid a thousand pounds a year, mm. and then people pay three thousand pounds a year and then nine thousand pounds a year, and it's the shift from one thousand to three thousand. Mm. That's the moment at which the Lib Dems really start to campaign among students to say, yeah. you know, we'll we won't raise them anymore, we'll reduce or get rid of, we'll have free tuition, and so lots of people I knew were very seduced by that as an yeah. idea, and then it's the huge backlash against Nick Clegg in 2010 when the coalition government introduces, when they completely remove the cap on fees and they go yeah. to nine grand. Um, so, yeah, I what think, was your first one? I think my first election was actually a church election. <laughs> 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 Which sounds weird, but in the, the Swedish church is separate from the state, mm-hmm. so they ha- actually have elections. Well, and, also separate from the state and democratic, which, yeah. is, a, which is... And it's, you, you know, know, political parties who are involved, so you can vote for the same same suspects as you do in each elections but they're also much smaller like really niche parties involved in them and I've always I mean I've been brought up to go voting whenever Mm -hmm. there's a chance I can't actually not vote Mm -hmm. it's physically impossible so I remember going actually to vote in that election I suppose I voted social democrats um how old were you then I would have been 19. So I voted in a general election for the first time when I was 20. Mm-hmm. So in 2002, which actually coincided with me moving to Britain. So I, I cast my vote and two days later I emigrated. <laughs> but I voted for the winners in that election. So Lisa Excellent. left the country in good hands. And then uh, the rest of Sweden messed it up in 2006. Yeah. But, um, and what is your voting status? I can vote in Swedish national elections. So right. the general election, I have a vote for parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, in Britain I can vote in council elections and EU elections Mm -hmm. I am technically able to vote in EU elections for the EU parliament in Sweden as well but they do ask you not to vote in two countries Mm -hmm. so I don't vote in Sweden I vote in the British parliamentary EU parliamentary elections is absentee voting in Sweden made easier by the fact that it's not it's not constituency based so you don't need to be voting for it in a particular because obviously in Britain, if you're you're voting, you have to have a constituency that you're voting in. Yeah, I think it's... it is, actually. They've made it a lot easier since I moved as well. So I've mm-hmm. been in Britain for 16 years. Mm-hmm. And it used to be that you could only really vote on the voting day, which is always a Sunday. Mm-hmm. But Swedish elections are also very regular. They're every four years. They mm-hmm. fall on the same weekend. It's mm-hmm. always on a Sunday. Right. Um, so, um, and it's next Sunday. There's Sunday coming up, I think. Um, and so you always know when it's going to happen, so mm-hmm. it's quite easy to plan around it. Whereas in Britain, we don't have like last minute elections yeah. like the 2017 one, which just came out of nowhere and <laughs> didn't really work out for anyone. Ooh. But also, we have national identity numbers right. and stuff, so we are much easier to track and, and you know, keep tabs on. Mm-hmm. So I vote at the Swedish Embassy and have done. I was going to th- ask at this. So you so you I, physically go to the Swedish Embassy in London and you cast a vote? Yeah, yeah. I can, I'll, can also vote in the post. So because I live abroad, I get sent a pack from the mm. Swedish Electoral Agency, mm-hmm. which includes like the postal vote, but mm-hmm. also the papers I need to take to the embassy. And I'm still registered. My vote is registered in the last... Uh, constituency that I lived in in, mm-hmm. in Malmö in Sweden. Um, this sounds enormously so efficient. my my yeah my vote is sent to yes. that counting and office. Counted there, counted there. So it's um, it's going to be quite a unique <laughs> vote in that area because that area is a predominantly conservative voting area, and I don't vote conservative. 
Um, I liked the when Macron was elected uh, in the French elections, and obviously they have the the runoff, mm. right? So you they have the votes and they have the series of votes depending on how for the presidential elections. And there were pictures in in, in London of the all of the French voters at the French embassy. And her French friends who were kind of posting pictures on Facebook are having to arrive and queue for hours in the French embassy mm. um, to vote. Because it was there's... very efficient at the Swedish embassy. Mm-hmm. I was there three days ago, I think, to mm-hmm. cast my votes a few days ahead of when you actually do it. You just go in, there were loads of booths. They just sat there with, like, everything's organised for mm. you. And as we left, there was a cinnamon bun and coffee waiting. So... <laughs> Served by the Swedish church, which is just around the corner, for free. That's, amazing. That's like giving blood. Like you get yeah. a hot drink and a sugary snack at yeah. the end of it. This is this is how we need to, you know, giving blood. They encourage you to do your democratic duty by giving you a club bar and a cup yeah. of tea. Yeah. And Sweden makes you vote by giving you a cinnamon bun and a cup of and coffee. And it's actually quite nice because we have a tradition in my family that I grew up with that we all went to vote, all of us, en masse. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. I haven't been to vote with my parents since 2002, I don't think. Mm-hmm. But we would always go home and have the famous Swedish fika or something mm-hmm. like you have, you know, you have sweet treats <laughs> and celebrate that you live in a democracy. <laughs> so it suited me quite well. Where do you vote in Sweden? Like, where are your polling? Is it uh, like in England? It's, I think I've voted, this used to be very different. It used to be mostly schools, I think. Mm -hmm. But these days you can vote pretty much anywhere and you Mm. don't have to necessarily vote in your local constituency office Mm. thing. So I know I was in Sweden. Oh, I might actually have been in Sweden for the 2014 elections or the Mm -hmm. 2010 elections. I can't remember, but one of them I voted in a shopping centre. So, just because I think one for British people voting, I mean, obviously, yeah, we don't we don't have regular elections. Our elections were always on a Thursday, but we don't have regular elections. They're at different times. They're mostly in May, but not mm. always. And they're historic elections that have happened at different points. You know, there were 1974. We had two elections mm. in 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 one year. Um, neither in May, but they do February and February and October. October I think, yeah. So we, you know, but they're. There is still a sort, a sort of sense of a kind of normal election, right? Which would be sort of the first Thursday in May. You know kind of what it's... The, what, about five years uh, after the last about one. About five years after the last one. In Sweden, they're over four years. And one of the things I think in England that for a lot of people is very evocative for, for voting is that we almost always vote in primary schools. Mm. So it's not, it's not totally the case, it's not. So when I worked at the University of York, the University of York was a polling booth because obviously we had a lot of students there who were registered to vote. So they would vote in, they voted downstairs in the history department. That's where their <laughs> thing was, which I really enjoyed. Um, and there's lots of different places can be polling booths in England, so or in England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. So you might have um, a pub. Pubs are often, often kind of repurposed. Uh, post offices, um, church halls, not yeah. churches normally, uh, but church halls. But the primary school is a really classic one. And I'm sure I remember when I was a child that sometimes you were off school when there was an election because primary schools were being used as mm. uh, things. But I might have got that wrong. And so I know quite a lot of people who feel like it's you no, know, it's if you stay in the same area that you grew up, it's a chance to go back and see your yes, old school. <laughs> exactly right. And this is the thing that now, like part of voting for for me as as a, an English person who's voted in, always voted in London. I've never voted in Lincolnshire. I left Lincolnshire when I was 18. I've never been there during an election. I've always voted in London. I've always voted in my local primary school. And it's always that you walk into, you know, through a kind of primary school, school hall. There's lots of tables and chairs, which are really tiny. Mm. You might you might walk past, like, a lot of pegs and things. Our primary school that we vote in, which I can see from the window of our flat, um, you... Last time we went in to vote, there was a Fire of London display. So the, the, the corridor you walked down to to get to the school hall to vote had all of these paper flames at the side of it and lots yeah. of things about the Fire of London. And then you vote, and you vote in a little voting booth and you fold your paper in half and you put it in a box. Um, I remember having a discussion about this on Twitter um, in the context of the Brexit referendum, which we're going to talk about next episode. Mm. But um, it being very bad weather, it was very rainy. And people were talking about maybe not everyone would get to vote because of the rain. And people from outside Britain seen, thought that this was quite a legitimate argument, that it might be difficult for you to get to where you were voting because of the heavy rain, or it might be difficult you know, because of transport failures. And all the English people were saying, like, 
we can see our polling booths basically from our houses. Like you, you they're such small often, mm. particularly in cities. Yeah. Um, there was a whole thing in South London. South Londoners suffered from kind of transport failures and that might yeah. mean they couldn't get home from flooding. work in, time, in yeah. time to to vote. But actually, you know, you normally vote somewhere very close to your house in in quite yeah. a small quite a small space. Our local um, polling booth is. Uh, on the estate next door mm-hmm. in their community hall and I think that's where I've voted for the probably for the last like 10 or 12 mm-hmm. years when I've lived in London I've voted in various community halls on estates now near where I live there's the kind of iconic it is like an iconic kind of design of the polling station the black um black text on the white background pinned onto various things yeah right? on election day you walk past all primary schools all church halls all have that poster outside that says polling station mm. and little arrows normally attached to tiny child-sized chairs pointing people in the right direction there was recently a story in america that they're very concerned that their voting machines can be hacked yeah and you know in britain we use a pencil and a piece yeah. of paper which can't yeah. be hacked and then again in america they said well you know the thing is if we don't use the voting machines we had the problem with hanging chads which they had in the year 2000 there's oh, yeah. that whole controversy so again just pencil and a piece of paper like it's yeah it's in sweden system, because of proportionate representation each party will have a list of preferred candidates in mm-hmm. order but you can tick your favorite and push them up the list mm-hmm. <laughs> um <laughs> but because i vote for a constituency in which i've not based i, I at the Swedish embassy they only had unmarked papers really mm-hmm. but you basically have a paper for each party mm-hmm. so you don't even really need to use a pen unless you specifically want to push someone up a list yeah because you just you, you just, just put, you paper. just put the paper in in an envelope and you yeah. give that envelope i remember it's always funny when you vote for the london assembly because you know our elections each constituency you might have seven parties eight parties standing but there's normally three candidates right yeah. it's labor conservative lib dems maybe ukip in some places um yeah the greens the greens in oh yeah of course i mean greens in brighton obviously won mm. won their seat and they might be in contender and then you get lots of very small parties there's like the tuc backed party that was around that ken loach was involved in um very small parties the legalized cannabis party which which stands in most london constituencies every time and then lots of independent people Mm. standing but you normally don't have loads to choose from but the london assembly you have so many people to choose from you always have to unfold the yeah the the polling paper and because it's in alphabetical order as well you then have to spend a2 sheet it's a great big long (laughs) piece of paper that you have to kind of go down and look for which i always enjoy um i'm always concerned that i put the tick in the wrong box i i find voting incredibly stressful I I feel like it's my only. Um, it's like I have a blind spot mm. for <laughs> for actually deciphering um, party symbols yeah, on on a absolutely. particular day. <laughs> well, also because because they list it by candidate name, not by party. Yeah. So you know, for the for the MP, it's fine because I've always in London, I've always lived in apart from a one terrible moment when George Galloway became my MP. Yeah. I've always lived in Labour constituencies i've always known the name of our mp i've always been happy with the mp i've always just voted for the mp mm. right so i've had um i uh, una king was my mp she was um, my mp when i first moved to london yeah then she was ousted by george galloway and respect became my constituency mp which, and then he mm. went on big brother and it was all terrible um but generally you know i know who i'm voting for particularly in local elections because it's listed by name, I always panic and think yeah. I must have. Ac- I've probably accidentally voted for the UKIP candidate somehow. Mm. Yeah, I do not trust myself to put a mark in a box next to a name. But this is another thing about living in South London. I don't really have a problem, even if I, even if I was to mess up. Everyone else is voting Labour around here. Yeah, so we'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, On that note, yeah, do you have a poem? I do have a poem. Um, I have a poem by uh, a poet who I really like called Emily Berry who um, wrote a, released a book quite recently called Dear Boy, which I think might even have been a book that I recommended at some point. On, mm, possibly. On this, um... I think we've talked about it at least. Uh, she wrote a really brilliant poem called Bad New Government, which is about waking up the morning after an election result has gone the wrong way. And it starts, Love, I woke in an empty flat to a bad new government. It was cold, the fridge was still empty. My heart, that junkie, was still chomping on the old fuel. Um... 
at the end and it finishes she says um i want to go very fast and email you about the following happy circumstances early rosebuds a birthday party a new cake recipe but today it's hot water bottles and austerity breakfast and my toast burns in protest but she concludes by saying that she's writing her first political poem which is also always about her love for you so the idea that you know that the politics politics is in everyday life but also that the way that we respond to politics kind of comes out in our domestic circumstances. I like the idea mm. of your toast burning in protest against the bad new government that your country has elected. I remember getting a text message from my boss in May 2010 mm-hmm. saying something like, I'm running late because I can't cope with this new electoral reality or the new political reality. I think I've saved it because I thought it was just brilliant. <laughs> and I think he was probably a couple of hours late. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this is, I mean, one of the things about as I say, like my entire teen, teen years having been lived under Labour governments is that I, you know, I'm, I'm very left wing. Um, and my, you know, I'm left wing enough that actually having a Labour government, I often was very angry with the government. Mm. I was very angry with the government about the Iraq war. I was very angry with the government about tuition fees. I was very angry with the government about a lot of things that they did. It was quite an easy government to have issues with if you're left wing. Exactly. So, but I wasn't really prepared for what it was like to have a right-wing government. Yeah. I'd been a child through the Thatcher and the major governments and I hadn't really experienced it. And so my experience of having a Labour government was these people are terrible, these policies are awful. And it wasn't until we got first a coalition government and then a Conservative government that I really ex- I experienced what it was like to be in opposition mm. from a position of kind of having felt like I'd been in opposition to the previous government that was theoretically my team. Yeah, it is. A, it's a weird experience. Um, it is bizarre. Um, yeah, it's it's fascinating though, and I think it's it's one of those things that, unfortunately, when people swap power or mm-hmm. go out of power, they tend to stay like that for a while. Mm-hmm. Here, mm-hmm. in particular. Yeah. So what are we going to do? Well, next week we're going to talk, or next episode we're going to talk about. Um, the Swedish election. Which is happening this Sunday. Yes, uh, which is not looking very promising for anyone, um, apart from the uh, nationalist, male chauvinist, welfare chauvinist, so Sweden Democrats. Yeah. But hopefully that's all been blown out of proportion. Yeah, so next week we're talking about, or next episode we're talking about populism and elections, I think. So Sweden yeah. and also Brexit, which we realise we haven't really talked about explicitly on the podcast yeah. yet. So that's coming up. But before we um, stop recording today, we've got our recommendations. Yeah. Which is probably going to be a little bit more positive news, isn't it? I mean... Mm, I think so. What's what's your recommendation? So we thought what we'd recommend uh, today is books about female politicians. Because mm. we've both been reading some, we both work on female politicians, and um, they're both books... I work with a female politician. <laughs> they're both books written by women about female politicians. So what's your recommendation? My recommendation, and this is something I thought I'd never say again, because I think the first ever recommendation I did on this podcast was a Thatcher biography. It was, yeah. And this is also a Thatcher biography. (laughs) (laughs) You're obsessed. And I I think I actually have left it. We've been doing this podcast for about a year now, and I think I have actually left Thatcher alone for a year. But Caroline Slowcock, who was the first... Let me just get her title completely right. So um, she was the first female private secretary at number 10. Mm. Um... And she was a private secretary um, to Margaret Thatcher mm-hmm. in 1989. So the last year that Margaret Thatcher was in power. Mm-hmm. And she's the only woman in that office at that level. Mm. And she's quite young. She's in her early 30s um, when she does this work. She's a leftist feminist. So she has she basically becomes a civil servant because she wanted to become an academic. Mm-hmm. Couldn't get the funding for to continue her PhD. So she spends a year on the doll mm-hmm. while Thatcher is in power. So that will be a very mm-hmm. pleasant year, right? Uh, and then she becomes a civil servant in the fast stream. So mm. she goes to work for Margaret Thatcher and she has, you know, ideas about who Margaret Thatcher is and, and what Margaret Thatcher does that mm. then doesn't really, she kind of becomes a bit mesmerized by her and the power. Mm. Um, but she continues to have a very critical eye. She's very good at portraying the relationships Mm. that Margaret Thatcher has with people, good and bad. And I definitely feel like this is the reason why women should be writing political biography. Mm -hmm. Because she talks about things and she sees things that these massive brick 
mm-hmm. like tomes of Charles Moore, which detail conversations to the most extreme extent, mm-hmm. um, they just sort of skim mm. or don't even mention. So there's a lot of context and a lot of thoughts mm-hmm. in this Caroline Slowcock book. It's called People Like Us, Margaret Thatcher and Me. It's a good title. Um, yeah. So I'm recommending uh, a book by Anne Perkins about Barbara Castle. So it's the authorised biography of Barbara Castle, which is called Red Queen. Um, there are other biographies of Barbara Castle. There's one by Lisa Martineau. And, and Castle also published her own memoirs, both in, in kind of longer and shorter versions, and wrote an autobiography. So she's quite a documented woman for good reason you know she's a very interesting political figure and she was very interested in her legacy she's very interested in her legacy and she's very interested in presentation we've talked about her quite a lot before as having this very key you know and some of my academic work has been about the way that she presents herself and how she uses image but Anne Perkins book Red Queen which is an authorised biography um is it's a good book it's a great read there are moments where I don't agree with Perkins um there are moments where I find her a little bit judgmental um and I think her own political sympathies come out very strongly, but I don't think that's I think that's always going to happen in writing. I don't mm. think there is there's no objective way of writing a biography, so I think, you know, that's that's perfectly legitimate. The thing I find really interesting about it is that this is an authorised biography, but Castle dies as as Perkins is writing the book. And um when she agreed to to write it, she agreed to write it based on interviews with Barbara Castle and also on kind of existing documents that are in the public eye newspapers hansard all of this sort of thing and obviously when castle dies perkins has the chance to see her personal papers which are given to oxford they're Mm. they're now in in oxford um because castle studied there they're not annoyingly in the labor party archive in the university uh, um at the people's history museum in manchester they're at the bodleian and perkins had the chance to look at them and she doesn't look at the papers because she had agreed with castle the parameters of this book mm. before she sat down to write it and she felt like this would have broken the agreement and i find this incredibly interesting because i think of journalists as be people who want to pursue a story at any cost mm. right so you would want to get to the story if you're shown the papers why would you not want to read them and as a historian certainly i don't have any sense of things being off the record no and and this is something that's actually becoming more interesting i think both of us are moving kind of more into contemporary history doing more oral history interviews, talking to more practitioners at the time, I still have a very strong sense that nothing I find out is off the record. I'm a historian. Unless they specifically all... tell us. Even right? then. I mean, you know, yes, maybe. Even then, I, as a historian, I'm kind of like, this is just information. Right? Mm. Like, it's not... I'm not used to having a relationship with living, breathing sources and having <laughs> to think about their feelings or what they want or do not want to be in the public eye. And in fact, mm. often historians delight in telling things which which people wouldn't have wanted to be in the public mm. eye, right? And so I find it really interesting that because Perkins is a journalist, she has this chance to find these, to reuse these documents, and she doesn't use them. So the biography now is really interesting because Barbara Castle's papers have been opened, partially opened. I'm sure there's lots that never made it into the archive, but they're there, and you can sit down and look at them, and then you look at the biography, and you can see where they kind of mm. contradict each other. And I find that really interesting as, as a kind of a... I mean, it's a good book anyway, but that kind of context, I think, makes it really interesting as a historian. Yeah, it makes it a good historical project as well Mm. to see the discrepancy between, or really the difference between how someone chooses to remember themselves and what actually happened. Because I I think it says a lot about identity and political identity and legacy, which is... You know, both Thatcher and, and Castle, they had have a lot in common. Absolutely. Apart from, you know, absolutely no politics. But they have that, they're of that generation, yeah. they have that hairstyle. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> the, the very similar kind of presentation. I would actually really like to write something about all of the different presentations of Castle and Thatcher. So mm. their, their personal presentation, their, their written presentation, the way that they dress, mm. but also academic reading and writing of them how these images have been constructed I think that that's a a really interesting topic one thing about this book by Caroline Slowcock is that on the day that Margaret Thatcher leaves 10 Downing Street Mm -hmm. she goes to the ladies loo and there's no toilet paper left (laughs) and she realizes it's because everyone's been crying Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's such a small little moment a little glimpse that no other person who's written a Thatcher biography would ever have thought of including but I think it says quite a lot because 
Thatcher has this reputation for being absolutely horrible to cabinet ministers and that's why mm-hmm. she fell out of favour. Um, but the people who actually worked for her seem to have genuinely liked her and mm-hmm. been very upset mm-hmm. when she Which was upset as she was leaving. Yeah, yeah, so it kind of puts these a slightly different spin on mm. people that we know quite well. Mm-hmm. Which I think is good, and yeah, and Perkins is also a woman writing about a woman. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, there's lots of those small things. And on that note, um, so next week we, as we said, we're going to be talking. Next episode, we're going to be talking about Sweden, the Swedish elections, Brexit, populism, more ideas about voting. Um, we have merch. Yes. Now, which we're very excited about. Some of you have very kindly made donations to the Tomorrow Never Knows Fund to help contribute to our hosting costs. Um, and if you have done that, then we will be sending you your merch out. Um, and other people, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, if you missed us over our slightly unscheduled summer break, <laughs> um, then please, you know, do consider making a donation and we can send you some merch. We've got bookmarks and pencils and badges, which yep. is all very exciting. Uh, you can find us on the internet you can find us on twitter we are at tnkpod you can find us on our website tomorrowneverknowspod.com make sure you sign up for our newsletter our footnotes which is where all of the information and all of the citations for these podcasts and sometimes the corrections sometimes corrections um i think our footnotes are great i really love reading our footnotes so (laughs) i would recommend that you sign up for those um and yeah any uh get in touch if you would like us to uh if you have any feedback we asked on uh twitter for suggestions about things you might like us to recommend yes and um people haven't so far had very many things if there's something that you think me and emma could recommend to you that you would trust our something that you would trust our opinion on I don't. I can't think what that would be. But if there's anything that you think that that we might be uh, an expert on, then please do ask for a recommendation. Okay, bye. Bye.